What is happening, Columbia? You're listening to Quarter Circle Backboard, a solo show dedicated to the sports that you like and the video games that I like. I'm Chris Mitchell here a little bit later than usual, about 10.30, 10.31, but I had to make sure that everything in here was right for y'all so we can get this Pac-12 preview underway. And, of course, we got some other stuff to talk about, too, because the Evolution Fighting Game Tournament Going down in Las Vegas is this weekend, so there's got to be a lot of stuff to talk about there. Some leaked surprises for Street Fighter V. Talk a little bit about that. Some uh, AAU basketball, believe it or not. We do have some hoop news in the relative drought of any sort of basketball news ever, so that'll be fun. And we finally, at long last, have actual NFL football going on tonight. Falcons-Broncos for the uh, Hall of Fame game. For the Hall of Fame game, uh, I'm not super excited, even though, you know, football is football, but yeah, I think I'm going to skip this one. Like, everyone knows, like, the Hall of Fame game isn't really that competitive, really. It's just just a lot of people just trying not to get hurt before the season, really. That's really, like, it, you know? I, I'm trying to think of, like, a Hall of Fame game where, like, people were actually, like, invested in what was, you know, actually going down. I guess for the surprise factor of maybe seeing Drew Locke play some snaps or, like, a quarter or something. That should interest, I don't know, Mizzou fans or Denver fans. But outside of that, eh, it's a Hall of Fame game. You know what it is. It's not, like, the main event. The main event is the dudes wearing those fancy schmancy gold suits. If that's more of your thing, more power to you. So there is that. Moving on, we got the Pac-12, baby. This is the Pac-12 episode of Core Circle Backboard. I'm actually surprised that there's actually, you know, relevant Pac-12 news to go with it because it came out a while ago, either like last week or a week and a half ago, that the Pac-12 commissioner... I forget his name off the top of my head, was thinking about moving Pac-12 games over to start playing at like 9 a.m. Central Standard Time just so they get that good, good noon slot with, you know, the rest of the country, I suspect. But that begs the question, who is getting up for... Who is getting up at like 9 a.m. for Pac-12 games outside of like... Teamsters and gamblers, honestly. Is that something is that something you like, you know, you wake up, you get your you get your fogers, you know, get your coffee, get your shower in, you know, maybe get the paper and you're like, you know what? You know what I'm gonna do on the Saturday morning? The morning do still fresh. Watch some watch Oregon State versus like Colorado. That's how I'm gonna start my morning. 
with Oregon, <laughs> with, you know, with not even like top, top pack, not even like USC versus Washington or whatever, or like Oregon versus Wazoo. It could be like anything that, you know, you're just like getting up super early for. I don't get it. I don't buy it. I wouldn't. I much rather prefer my Pac-12 at the wee wee hours of the night when no one can see it. <laughs> when no one can see the dark deeds of the Pac-12 going on. I like it when it's Arizona State versus Michigan State ending at like 1 in the morning. 16-13. Sun Devils. Things like that anyways. Moving on. Let's start with the Pac-12 North. With number one, Washington. A.K.A. the... Probably the team that's going to come away with the division. Maybe? Probably? The thing is, though, there has been there has been a lot of turnover on that defense this past offseason. Guys like Byron Murphy, Taylor Rapp, Greg Gaines, and Ben Burkiven all left to either graduate or head to the draft. But this isn't the first time a Chris Peterson Huskies team had to deal with household name talent leaving for the draft. See, you know, like last year with Vita Vea. Bad news is there may be enough of an exodus here to warrant a the defense taking a steeper dip in quality than years past. So you might have some uh, areas to work out over there. But on the flip side of the ball, Jacob Browning is out of the picture in all of his Anson's pants antics, scrambling after like two seconds in a relatively clean pocket. <laughs> Very high anxiety football that boy played. Which means it's time for Georgia transfer. Jacob Eason to take the reins of the offense to try to add a little bit more pop. Because last year they only had 12 gains of 40 plus yards on offense. Which if you're supposed to be the front runner for the Pac-12 North, that is just not going to cut it. You can try it, but hey man. There's going to be some teams nip at your heels all season. Good news is he's got weapons like Ty Jones and Aaron Fuller to help kick to start this offense into overdrive. Bad news is they got a f their first like big test is against Cal in week two, which they could be pretty dangerous. I think we can talk about that a little bit later. But besides that, they play all their toughest opponents at home, so that shouldn't be too much of an issue. Probably their biggest threats to Pac-12 supremacy are Oregon and an ankle biting Wazoo. Speaking of Wazoo, in 2017, Eastern Washington stunned Wazoo and Pullman thanks to some impeccable QB play by their own Gage Gabrud. I'm going to assume that's how you say it. Who threw for 474 yards, five touchdowns, one pick, and missing only six of his 40 passing attempts. Flash forward to two years from now. To now blah, blah, that's how you say it. We're, this, we're the same quarterback as the starter for Wazoo. And this is the part where I'm contractually required to mention that it doesn't really matter who they throw behind center because last time Wazoo threw for less than 4,600 yards in a season was Mike Leach's first year in Wazoo. And that was back in 2012, Cats. Beyond that, there's some turnover on the defensive backcourt that can make Wazoo's inability to stop the run last year and possibly this year even more glaring. But that's not really to count out Wazoo by any stretch, especially if they keep it close in like whatever contentious game they're in because they had a 4-1 and one record in one possession games last year. But to be genuine contenders, they got to run through Houston, Arizona State, UCLA, Oregon, Cal, and Stanford, which 
they got to go. To, they got to go to Houston to play the Cougs, and man, that is going to be. <laughs> well, I think I might DVR that if I can. That's going to be appointment television for me at least, because like for me at least, Dana Holgerson led Houston versus a Mike Leach led Wazoo in the boggy swamp of Clutchtown. That's that's what football means to me. That's that's that good good football. Very excited for that. Yes, Wazoo's defensive backs may be undersized, but when are they not? <laughs> it doesn't matter what their defense is as long as they, like, score enough points and pass for enough yards. Like, what are we doing? Yeah, sometimes they'll lose in a shootout, but who cares? It's Wazoo. They'll probably win, like, eight games and score, and score an average of, like, 40 points per game. It's nothing. It's Wazoo. You know what it is when you signed up. Drink that fireball. Let's get it. Moving on to number three, Oregon. What they what the Ducks have going from this year is a pretty experienced offensive cast. I mean, a lot of that has to do with Justin Herbert spurning the NFL draft to play one more season with the Ducks, which, I mean, do you blame him really? Do you let the Giants take a shot at drafting you? I don't think so. Not here, monsieur. And not to mention, they pretty much didn't turn over anybody via graduation or the draft on either the O-line or D-line, the wideouts, or the secondary. Oregon's got the pieces and experience to make a pretty solid divisional run, I think. And maybe if they win, like, I don't know, like 11 games or something, they could have a shot at the playoff. As long as they beat whoever is on the other side of the Pac-12, I think. But really, the only real obstacle they have to cross is every now and again, last year, Oregon would be prone to very... I, they were infrequent, I'd say, but pretty potent nonetheless hiccups in execution, which led to put, only putting up seven points against Olympia Michigan State and letting a winnable game against Stanford slip through their fingers. And whew, that was a that was a rough one. And on top of that, all their opponents are teams they have to play. Their toughest opponents are teams that have to play on the road, so they got to play Auburn. Well, that's like a, it's a neutral site game, but come on, it's down south. That's like mostly Auburn fans down there who will like make the trip. But Oregon travels well, so who knows? It might balance out. You got Stanford on the road in the eerie quiet. You got Washington, and then you got USC. So if they can strang- if they can uh, wrangle together, strangle together, wrangle together some super solid wins against these pretty scary opponents. Ducks might have a shot. That's really all you can ask for. Up next, number four, Oregon State. And they're probably, they're the team I have projected to be the very, very bottom of not just Pac-12 North, but probably the Pac-12 in general, because it's entirely possible that the Beavers had the worst defense in all of FBS last year. The most efficient aspect of their defense was their pass defense, which ranked 
and 126th in the nation. And that was their most efficient aspect on defense. It was so bad that it kind of overshadowed an actually solid offense led by Jake Luton, who completed 63% of his passes last season. I don't think it'd be out of the question to see Oregon State, I wouldn't say win a bunch of games, but they could get into a lot of shootouts this season. If you ever seen The Matrix, picture like the kid, the hacker kid who got popped by all those agents, but he was dual wheeling Brownings. Remember that scene where he's just like taking all these shots, but delivering them back while he gets, you know, knocked out that window. That's what I see Oregon State as. Ah, oh, I forget his name. It's going to kill me. Like <laughs> for this whole preview. Either way, it should be a very entertaining tire fire if they don't learn anything on defense or improve in any way, shape, or form. Sorry, Beavers. Your bottom feeders again. Up next. Number five, Stanford. Okay, so riddle me this. You got KJ Casello, quarterback for Stanford, and Justin Herbert, Oregon quarterback. Which stat line do you think this belongs to? 65% completion rate, 8.6 yards per pass, 157.4 passer rating against Power 5 defenses, and 153.5 passer rating in November and beyond. If you selected KJ Costello, congratulations. You're probably a Stanford fan. How's that how's that going? <laughs> congratulations, all like 10 of you. Unfortunately, his supporting cast of Bryce Love, JJ, Arcega Whiteside, and Trent Irvin, and four line O-line starters all graduated slash got drafted. So Stanford's got some work to do. Getting some fresh yet experienced faces to fill the holes left behind. Man, that was a really even though, you know, like Bryce Love wasn't that good because <laughs> some of you've heard this one, a football team, a power five football team designed a team that was supposed to work on the run. Like that was supposed to be their bread butter, got a star running back and whoops, they couldn't run the ball. Uh Oh, how that happened. <laughs> whoops. Forgot to pack their run up <laughs> rushing attack and therefore wasted a pretty super solid running back in Bryce Love which is unfortunate because I feel like if Stanford had any real semblance of a super solid run game then he could then Bryce Love could have been a Heisman contender I feel that way about Jonathan Taylor too running back for uh, Wisconsin which we'll, we'll probably talk about either next week or the week after that. The most exciting thing about Stanford this year is their potential to really screw everybody. In what is sort of a down year for the trees. I forget their nickname, so I'm just going to call them the trees because, well, come on, man. There's trees everywhere. Out there. It's on their helmet. Do you Googles? They host Oregon, Washington, and Notre Dame. And any one of those games could get incredibly dicey for travelers if Stanford decides they want if <laughs> if Stanford wants to decide who will lead that division, they probably could. If they themselves have no real aspirations to uh what's it called? Lead lead the division themselves. 
I'd put Stanford down as like the operant agent of chaos in the Pac-12 North wazoo just behind, if only because Stanford just has that really, really delicious home schedule against actual like Pac-12 North contenders and Notre Dame on top of that. Hey, stop me if you heard this one. Notre Dame could face some trouble against Stanford at Stanford with playoff hopes on the line. Could you believe it? Imagine that. Oh, man. Good luck, Stanford. Please screw everybody. That'd be so funny. And then last but not least, very close to least but not least, in the Pac-12 North, you got Cal. Which... To their credit, it was very hard to score on Cal last year, and this year probably won't be much different. The Golden Bears got goons like Evan Weaver and Tevin Pollitt, linebacker, Cameron Bynum and Elijah Hicks at corner, and Ashton Davis and Jalen Hawkins at safety, and they're all coming back, all with more experience, so don't be surprised. This turns out to be one of the best defenses in the nation, bar none. But as with all things Cal football, there must be a, a yang to their yin. And that yang is an offense that ranked 118th overall in efficiency last year and had to replace eight starters this past offseason. So I guess, I mean, there's some upside. Probably won't be much of the same offense as last year. So that could be good. Not knowing what you're getting with a defense that ranked pretty poorly last season could mean some, you know, good times potentially some upside, but who knows their biggest barrier to entry will be to, yeah, score points. And as of now, I've seen no real reason for them to be much better at it this year, but who knows? I could be wrong, but what makes Cal an enticing candidate for another agent of chaos in the Pac-12 North is that, they can prey upon teams that are going through some serious changes on offense. So I'm talking about guys like, I'm talking about teams like Washington, teams like Stanford. I think they play Stanford. They probably do, yeah. And Wazoo, because I mean, ooh. Granted, Wazoo might be different because <laughs> we know how that offense works. But yeah, they got some... Cal's also got high spoiler potential, if only because of that bone-crushing defense. Bad news is they probably won't score on anybody. Because that's something they're going to have to work out in their own right. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about Pac-12 South. Some goons to look out for there. Talk about some Evo, I think. Going to talk about Amir Garrett, Cincinnati Reds player who... Got to scrapping with some Pittsburgh Pirates a couple of days ago. We're going to get through all of that and more up next on Core Circle Backboard. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back.
Make sure to start your week off right by listening to General Emission on KCOU 88.1 FM from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. every Monday morning. I think he's wrong, though. You're, it's a you're heartless agreeing move. and disagreeing There's, on the same topic. I'm not disagreeing with you. I'm not disagreeing that it wasn't a smart move. I'm just not disagreeing with Anthony Davis's dad either. Once again, that's General Admission from 8 to 9 a.m. on KCLU 88.1 FM for the latest updates from the MLB, NFL, NBA, and the NCAA. Indoor baseball, anyone? Most party fouls are pretty dumb, but if you decide to drink and drive underage, you could lose your license and your freedom. Learn more at ultimatepartyfoul.org. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Missouri Tigers football and men's and women's basketball on KCOU 88.1 FM and KCOU Sports is brought to you by El Rancho. Located at 1014 East Broadway, El Rancho provides themselves in serving up fresh and authentic Mexican food. To look at their menu and learn more, go to www.columbiamomexicanfood.com. Thank you, El Rancho, for supporting KCOU 88.1 FM, the student voice of the Missouri Tigers. Welcome back, listeners. You're tuned into Quarter Circle Backboard, a solo show dedicated to the sports that you like and the video games that I like. Come at you hot with this Pac-12 preview episode, but there's a little bit more than that because uh, guess what, y'all? It is Evo weekend uh, this weekend. That's right. The Evolution Fighting Game Tournament is here. Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Tekken, Soul Calibur, Dragon Ball Fighters, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate. True love we're making here and all the way over in Vegas for probably the biggest fighting game tournament of the year. It's a little bit more than that now. It's evolved into a little bit more of like a, I don't know, like a Penny Arcade Expo. For fighting games too, which is also good. A lot to look forward to for that. I, for one, am mostly grateful that Street Fighter does not have the primetime slot this time. Mostly because primetime for Vegas means two hours, means like nine o'clock <laughs> over in Midwestern time. So that could get a little bit dicey, especially if you're trying to, you know, catch some Z's. Because I think last time, I think Street Fighter Five went till like midnight. Which, if you're wired and watching fighting games for, like, I don't know, the better half of, like, 10 hours, that can be a little bit draining emotionally, physically, spiritually. But got some good news because, well, semi-good news. Good news if you're, you know, like, fans of surprises. Or, I guess not good news if you're fans of surprises because this leaked early. Three new Street Fighter Five characters coming either at the very end of EVO or, I don't know, sometime during it. And that's E-Honda, that's Poison, and that is Lucia. Lucia is a newcomer to Street Fighter V, or the Street Fighter series in general, originally from a series called Final Fight, which Street Fighter is very much familiar with, aping characters from that series, because Poison is also from Final Fight. 
And then, of course, you got the man, the myth, the legend, the paws, the hands. That was a hand slap E Honda back at again after a short after a short exile, a short hiatus from Street Fighter after not being in like the first like couple years of Street Fighter Five, but was in Street Fighter Four. So he'll be back. And E Honda looks I he's probably the one I'm most excited for because I love me some E Honda. And he looks very much like E Honda. Not really reinventing the wheel with him that much, really. Which, I mean, fine with me. As long as you got that slap, as long as you got that headbutt, everything's nice and cool in the hood. It's good for that. And you got Poison, which a a very much fan favorite. If you've ever Googled a, a uh, image of what Poison looks like, you probably understand why she's a fan favorite. But yeah, that should be... Fun for Poison fans who, you know, played her a lot in the Street Fighter 4 era. And then you got Nuke, uh, and yeah, she looked, before I move on, she looked pretty much similar to how she did in Street Fighter 4 a little bit. That's my estimation. Not too bad, really. Not too shabby. Probably won't pick her up that much if I get the season pass, but yeah, who knows? And then last but not least, you got Lucia. From Final Fight 3, I think. And she got King of Fighter vibes. At least that was what I gathered from watching like a, like a solid minute slash 45 seconds of gameplay. So it'll be interesting to see how those characters shake out. I don't think they're, you know, breaking the mold or anything like with characters like G like a couple seasons ago, or I guess last season. I mean, yeah, it's kind of interesting that there's just so much time like where we just got nothing <laughs> from Street Fighter V. We got Kage after I think the Capcom Cup and then there was just nothing and then just a Triple espresso shot of three fighters, right to your dome piece. And about the regular time it would have taken them to, like, drop them one by one. So, I don't know, man. It's interesting. Kind of hoping they got one more surprise up their sleeve just to prove the doubters and haters and, I don't know, dudes who are, like, sort of burned out on this current iteration of Street Fighter. That's been going on since probably Street Fighter 4, if we're going to keep it a stack waiting on something new maybe some maybe not marvel versus capcom exactly but maybe something adjacent to a marvel versus capcom alternative something like that might be cool i don't know why not sort out i'm gonna pause for studio identification real quick you're listening to quarter circle backboard you're on kclu 88.1 fm and kclu.fm this is lorena hollander from the brazilian band diaphanous and you're listening to kcou colombia thank you moving on well final thoughts on e3 or not, not e3 evo i'm probably gonna watch some tekken probably gonna watch some mortal kombat I watched some Dragon Ball Fighters just on the off chance they announce a new character it's probably gonna be someone like janemba who was big if you watch like Dragon Ball GT, I think. He was either part of GT or like one of the last like movies that came out before GT. 
or before or like the last movie before like the Dragon Ball Super series of movies started coming out. So that should be fun. Tekken was super lit last year, so I'm definitely going to watch some more of that. Mortal Kombat 11 just came out, so I'll be interested to see who's down with that. Mostly going to be watching for my boy Sonic Fox. Because that dude is just a machine, whatever game he picks up. So that would be fun. Probably going to watch for, I think... I bet he's probably still playing Dragon Ball Fighters. Going to be watching for Goichi. It was really big last year. Got to the grand finals. Lost in a bracket reset situation to Sonic Fox. And then you got Fenrich. Another super strong Dragon Ball player. I think who's going to be at Evo also. Hooking God, all those guys give me interesting, interesting to see how they shake out. Probably not going to watch a whole lot of Smash Ultimate because <laughs> I'm not super duper versed in that. I might catch a little bit of it, but not enough to have serious thoughts about or takes on it at all. Except for the new guy, which we'll talk a little bit about that in the end of the show. But we got to move on to USC kicking thing, kicking things off for the Pac-12 South. And oh boy, <laughs> those first six games are pretty brutal. They got visits from defending Mountain West champs Fresno State, who also bopped Arizona State in a bowl game last year. They got to play Utah and Stanford, plus trips to BYU, Notre Dame, and Washington. It's kind of hard to find a sure win until maybe Colorado. If they, scan, if they can't scrape together a win or two before that, you're probably looking at an 0-6 Trojan squad that is, you know, stop me if you heard this one. Uh, Trojans team got a lot of talent, not really playing up to expectations. This is the part where I tell you that USC probably has top 10 caliber talent, just like they did last year. Unfortunately for them, there isn't really an advanced statistical category where they ranked in the top 20. Just generally under... <laughs> A USC team underperforming. Where have I heard that before? But stop me if you heard this one too. Clay Helton's Trojans are fixing to make some noise in this division. Maybe even enough to seriously challenge Utah or even Washington. But to do that, and but to do that, they have to <laughs> prove to everybody then they can do more than just look like a serious contender. Which after that, if they like holds firm and strong or whatever during that first six-game skid and don't go 0-6, defying all odds and expectations and logic. It could be an okay year. It might win seven games. I don't know. Six, maybe? I don't know. If the Trojans make it that far, then we truly have wandered into the unknown. So that could be fun to watch if you're a fan of wild cards like that. Anyways, moving on to UCLA. Last year wasn't exactly the dramatic, triumphant return of one of the best offensive-minded coaches to grace the Pac-12 because Chip Kelly's Bruins struggled mightily to the tune of a 3-9 and nine record, and I think a lot of that had to do with Kelly punching way above his weight class in recruiting because he wasted a lot of time throwing shots up at a, you know, top recruits that, had, that really weren't even thinking about UCLA that much, to be honest, hoping to, you know, fly off the name recognition. 
And, you know, high expectations could be real killers if you don't really have the talent on the roster to back it up. Fortunately for that offense, you saw a little bit of what could happen if they, if Chip Kelly expanded upon the run game. UC Davis transfer Joshua Kelly's touches gradually increased throughout the season, and as they did, so did the amount of points that the Bruins scored. This, on top of the fact that quarterback Dorian Thompson-Robinson is no longer a babyface true freshman, means that you could see some yeah, solid improvement in that offense. On the flip side of the ball, the Bruins were pretty catatonic on defense, to put it bluntly. They did not offer a whole lot in terms of disrupting the passer and the offense as a whole. If they want to change that last year, UCLA is going to need more than like three playmakers, tops in linebackers, Chris Barnes and Keyshawn Lucier South and corner Darnay Holmes. And on top of that, that road schedule is also pretty terrifying. <laughs> So expecting them to be even a dark horse candidate in the division this year would be a pretty big stretch. At least for my liking. I guess we'll see how that shakes out. Moving on to number three, Colorado. Guess what, Buffalo fans? It's a rebuilding year. Mel Tucker's your head coach now. And as luck would have it, he's only got seniors on the secondary and quarterback. Twerk on replacing. Speaking of the quarterback, Steven Montez and wide receiver LaVisca Chenault Jr. popped off for 1,011 passing yards and six touchdowns between the two of them. So there's your base for your offense if you can't get the run game to do anything. That, of course, presents its own bag of worms and problems. As your new offensive coordinator, Jay Johnson, also from Georgia, excelled best as a play caller in places like Southern Miss in Minnesota when the run game was physical and the quarterback was mobile. And unfortunately, Montez isn't really your prototypical mobile quarterback. And as previously mentioned, the run game might have some issues. So finding a lot of like offensive consistency in the run game, uh, the play calling might be an issue coming out the gate and probably might be steadfast for most of the year. And as far as youth goes, there's plenty to go around on that defense. And it's ripe for juniors like Mustafa Johnson and Nate Landman to go spring up as leaders on that side of the rock. I say all that to say that it's this, that it is still a year zero for a new coaching staff. So I don't expect a whole heck of a lot right now. But I'll look to see if Tucker is able to make up for the talent discrepancy between Georgia and Colorado. Because that's gonna be <laughs> that's gonna be really important. Because Colorado, believe it or not, is not bringing in the top tier blue chip caliber talent that Georgia does every season. So that might be an issue. Who knows? Might be fine. Might not be. Who knows? Only one way to find out. Up next, Arizona. And as much as. He struggled last year under Kevin Sumlin and Sumlin's new system. And, of course, having to deal with injuries. Quarterback Khalil Tate's explosiveness when he's healthy and both the run and the pass game should not be ignored. I say this as a Khalil Tate stand as of two years ago. Because, oh, man, he was just, whoo. Oh, man, if, like, <laughs> I'm not even kidding. Like, Khalil Tate, at least for me, had to be in like some sort of like preseason Heisman conversation 
because if he was healthy this year and didn't have to go through the growing pains of a new offensive system, that dude could have been super deadly. And even still, even when he was not all that potent on offense, Arizona still gained 30-plus yards 40 times. So I'm talking about gains on one play of 30-plus yards through 12 games, did a 40 times, which is good enough for 12th in FBS. Unfortunately, that explosiveness did not translate to red zone success, either on offense or defense. For reference, they scored 4.5 points per scoring opportunity and allowed 5.2 points per scoring opportunity on defense. So that's the 0.7 point discrepancy, which they had to make up for, which is not optimal. You don't want to be playing that game of possessional catch-up with your opponent by any stretch. It's also another one of the, and this season, especially with that schedule, is also another one of those cases where the Wildcats don't have a lot of surefire wins since they have road games against USC, Stanford, Oregon, and Arizona State. If they want to amount to anything this year, they're going to have to make good on the red zone opportunities and prevent and preventing some on defense so they don't have to, you know, keep playing that game of catch-up. Might be a solid dark horse candidate if Khalil Tate comes out the gates just Firing on all f- all four cylinders, running, passing, all that jazz. At the very least, Arizona could be fun to watch, at least on offense. So you got that going. Up next, number five, your dark horse candidate for the Pac-12 South, Arizona State. Woo, Herm, baby. Even though the season ended by getting popped by Fresno State in a bowl game, Herm Edwards and his pretty solid Actually, cast of assistant coaches proved that his old philosophy is running the ball like crazy and not giving up easy buckets on defense can pay dividends, even if it's not pretty to watch. Surprise wins against Utah, USC, and Michigan State, and some incredibly close losses against Washington, Colorado, Stanford, and Oregon was kind of amazing, if you think about it. Like, Washington, Colorado, Stanford, and Oregon were all one-possession games. Like, if the ball tipped... The other way, the Sun Devils could have, be, could have been staring down the barrel of an eight or nine win season last year, which in a year one slash year zero for a new coach, especially a coach like Herm Edwards, who does not have a whole lot of college football coaching experience, that'd be kind of incredible. Unfortunately, if they want to replicate that level of success this year, they're going to have to do it without Manny Wilkins, or quarter, last year's quarterback, and top light out Nikhil Harry who I would run into battle for any of those cats any day of the week. Thank you very much. Let's keep that straight right now. Fortunately, Eno Benjamin and pretty much every single other receiver is still around, which can make for a particularly potent rushing and play-action attack. And on the flip side of... On the flip side of the ball, a defense that consisted of freshmen like linebackers Merlin Robinson and Darian Butler, safeties and safety Ashari Crosswell, sophomore sophomore corner Chase Lucas, and ranked 28th overall in marginal explosiveness last year. And those goons are all back this year with a healthy dose of experience to boot. What's the best thing about sophomores? They become juniors. What's the best thing about freshmen? They become sophomores. Unfortunately, and this comes with the territory of any defense like that sort of like emulates the style, the bend don't break defense did a whole lot of bending last year as the defense ranked 105th marginal efficiency allowed overall 
If you're patient with ASU, you could dink and donk your way to scoring 28-plus points, which is what six of their last eight opponents did. Depth is also going to be a big problem on both sides of the ball, but the schedule, I think, is friendly enough to do some breaking in of that quarterback and other areas across the field. So it shouldn't be too terrible, I don't think. At least for my liking. I know, I guess we'll see what happens there. And finally, ending this Pac-12 preview, you got Utah. Utah should probably be the most feared team in that division. Actually, I'm going to run that back. Utah should probably be the most feared team in the whole conference. And with good reason, as per usual, that defense is going to be what brings home the bacon because they're getting almost every single D lineman back for a defensive line that ranked eighth in marginal rushing efficiency allowed and second in stuff rate last year. Linebacker is going to have to be broken in a little bit because they had a little bit of turnover over there. But the four top ends like senior Bradley and Nay and the top three tackles like seniors Lakey Fotu and John Penasini are all back and they're going to be animals. On that D-line, they're just going to rip opposing O-lines to shreds. Unfortunately, the flip side of the ball isn't as exciting because even though quarterback Tyler Huntley and running back Zach Moss were efficient as all get-out last year, uh, granted, before they got injured, their explosiveness on offense as a whole was pretty lackluster as the Utes only gained 30-plus yards in one play 26 times, which, as I said earlier... Minimal explosive plays in the Pac-12, not going to cut it if you want to be a serious contender. The question is, how are they going to handle their two road trips? Because they really cannot drop games against Washington in November or against a USC team looking to really prove itself in the conference early in September. Oh, man. Either USC or UCLA could be... I feel like UCLA has the potential to be the most threatening ankle biter for the Utes this season. But if they stand strong, they'll also stand atop. They'll also stand atop the division, largely unchallenged. I say all that to say that if I had to give a good guesstimation of who to see in the Pac-12 title game, uh, I think I'd go Oregon-Utah. I feel like there's there was enough turnover on Washington's defense where maybe it takes a little bit longer for everything to click. And maybe thanks to that experience last year, Oregon sort of like irons out the kinks in their offense and their overall like efficiency. So they got that going for them. But I don't know. It'll be interesting to see who comes out on top because it's, for me, honestly, it's like a dead heat between Oregon and Washington. For this Pac-12 North, Pac-12 South, I mean, if everything goes right, I'd pick Utah to be at the top of that. Of course, Dark Horse candidate, Arizona State. I mean, I feel like they're the only, they're the team with like the most like chutzpah, as it were, because I mean, I mean, we saw the game last year because Arizona State just sort of like went to town on Utah because they abided, they did not abide by Utah's rule of leaving your offense, you know, at home. All you got to, really all you got to do, 
to beat Utah is just like just say no to the rule. They, Utah wants a knife fight. Utah is that guy in Raiders of the Lost Ark who did all that cool stuff with the sword and Arizona stays like Indiana Jones just going shooting him right in the gut. That's really all he had to do to beat Utah. Just don't play by their rules. Even if your rules aren't sound per se. Don't worry about it. It'll be fine. Just play your own brand of football and not Utah's brand of football. You should be A-OK. I think that is going to do it for this sort of block of content when we come back. I'm going to talk a little bit about Amir Garrett. I'm going to talk a little bit about the AAU. And after that, uh, who knows? Maybe I'll take you guys out for some ice cream. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to Quarter Circle Backboard here on KCOU 88.1 FM and KCOU.FM. Because if you use drugs, you better leave it alone. Drugs are contagious. They're killers. Every drug is a killer. Stay away from drugs. Drugs will take your life away. And if you want to live, stay away from drugs. Because they are super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad, super bad. Sundays at 9 a.m., it's the weekly walkthrough. Tune in to KCOU 88.1 FM to hear Ethan Salm and Nick Catlin recap everything that happened in the world of sports this week. Start your Sunday off right with the weekly walkthrough. Follow us on Twitter at Weekly Walk KCOU for updates on the show. And remember to tune in to KCOU 88.1 at 9 a.m. on Sundays. Looking to up your style with the changing season? Need a quick costume rental or just want to give some dope old clothes a new life? Check out Mod Vintage downtown for the best trend vintage around. We'll also pay cash for your retro wares if they no longer spark joy. Just go on down to Mod V at 818 East Broadway because life's too short to be basic. back everybody for this final stretch of content for your ear holes that sounded weird i'm gonna try it again what's up everybody it is we are back here with more sub i'm just gonna move on i'm chris mitchell 
back here for this final stretch of Quarter Circle Backboard, a solo show dedicated to the sports that you like and the video games that I like. We're going to wind down here with a little bit of baseball news because the MLB trade deadline was yesterday. There were some pretty solid moves, I'd say. Zach Greinke getting traded to uh, the Houston Astros, rounding out a super, super solid rotation there. I'm trying to think who else got traded. Oh, yeah, Yasiel Puig. He got traded to Cleveland from the Cincinnati Reds. And why is this relevant right now to me? Because his last act as a Cincinnati Red was to get into another brawl with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Thanks in no short span at all to Reds reliever Amir Garrett, who came charging off the mound towards the opponent's dugout to seemingly take on the whole team by himself. And oh my God, when I first saw that video, I was like, oh, no way. There's like absolutely no way that that dude just came charging at the whole dugout. And he did. What I like most about the video that I saw was um, that, uh, like, even, like, the announcers were into it. And, like, right before he, like, once he, like, crossed, like, the dirt, one of the announcers was like, all right, and here we go. Then, pow, right in the kisser. And then, of course, when, like, actual fighting started, they're like, oh, no, oh, gosh. Oh, dear, they're actually fighting. It's like, uh, doy. Like, they just threw down in April. What makes you think they wouldn't actually throw hands again? <laughs> Here in the bottom of the NL Central basement between the Cincinnati Reds and the Pittsburgh Pirates. Man, I don't think there's been a good old-fashioned knockdown, drag-out brawl like that since, as previously mentioned, the, the last Pirates-Reds fight. So, you know, and I feel like my favorite part of all this is that, you know what happened the next day? They played each other again. I feel like that's like the hidden beauty of baseball is like, it, it doesn't matter what happens like the day before you could get shelled like 30 to six, or you could just get in like a bench clearing brawl, get a black eye or whatever. Sprain your wrist, punching a dude and you just come back the next day. Like nothing happened at all <laughs> the day before that, which it's kind of a, it's kind of beautiful in a way. That dumb, dumb sport. That even though I say I, I don't love that much, I really do love just for moments like this. So anyways, salute to you, Yasiel Puig, for making your last real thing with the Cincinnati Reds get into a fight with the Pirates. They should probably retire your number <laughs> after this. They should probably retire your Garrett's number after this because that's just baseball, baby. That's just how it'd be. Dodgers, Yankees still have some rotation and bullpen issues that they needed to iron out but did not for some reason. Don't know why. Royals probably could have flipped Wood Merrifield or Ian Kennedy for some prospects. It's some actual like M MLB like ready caliber players. But oh well. 
think Castellanos, that's how you say it, got traded to the Cubs. So that's good for them. Some more po- Got some more firepower over there. Fun, fun stuff. Marcus Stroman got traded to the Mets. That was fun. The Mets, baby. Good all around, generally. And finally, last but not least, we got some amateur athletic union basketball news to talk about. <laughs> because for those of you who don't know, AAU basketball is pretty much what you do in the dog days of summer to sort of like keep your kids and your parents off the streets, give them something to do while they're waiting for school to start. And usually it's pretty, I feel like calling it casual would be generous. Uh, The wild west of basketball closer to the point. Why is AAU basketball relevant right now? Because Bronny, Bronny Jr., LeBron James's kid is playing some AAU ball this summer. It's got some highlights. They're playing pretty solid. Him and his team, I think, won whatever AAU tournament they were in. But if you've been watching any of Bronny highlights this summer, they're usually accompanied by, in no short order, LeBron James. Bron Bron himself. Having himself a good old time watching his son hoop. <laughs> and crossing some, like, li- very literal and uh, proverbial boundaries by celebrating his son hooping out by getting on the court <laughs> and doing, like, that thing where you watch your, your buddy just yam it on somebody. Taking bench reactions to like a whole new level. And of course, and there was one video where I think he, you know, was doing some layup lines with the team, you know, just hooping ball is ball, which opened a sort of can of worms online as per most things that really popular celebrities and athletes do. (laughs) I mean, I didn't feel like there was anything too egregious with LeBron taking his celebration all the way to the, all the way to out on the court. <laughs> because AAU, I feel like, is pretty lax about that anyways. Like, they just let any old dude just like, I don't know, do stuff. And I feel this will, this could be backed up too, because I was reading a lot of AAU bingo, that uh, Twitter account, AAU bingo, to sort of like familiarize myself with some of the shenanigans and the antics that can go around. In AAU sports leagues. And let me tell you, partner, like LeBron, like celebrating too much for his kid, hooping out and maybe dunking in the practice layup line. That's like the least of AAU basketball's problems. If you had to like pick any of them, I'm not, that's not to say that there's like a uh, insidious like thing wrong with AAU basketball as a whole. I think there is a very good place for, you know, casual you know, rec league-esque team play, tournament play, something, you know, very low stakes, but you can still, you know, stretch your legs out a little bit, work on your shooting a little bit, maybe work on your defense a little bit. But anyways, I feel like 
to call, I don't know, LeBron shenanigans at AAU basketball, an affront to the sanctity of AAU basketball is to sort of ignore, you know, what AAU basketball is, which is, you know, very low-key, very chill. Still a tournament setting, but, you know, not not as, like, important as, like, other parochial, like, type deals. And, of course, no, like, discussion online about LeBron would be complete without some old head sports columnist talking about that one time he saw Michael Jordan watch his kids hoop out and not say a single thing. And you know what? I wouldn't say anything, too, if they were getting cooked. My kids were getting cooked by Aaron Gordon for 45 points and putting up five points on nine shots. <laughs> oh, my God. Which, I mean, Google... Google that, will you? And just look at the look at Michael Jordan's face, just like just hiding like the internal like shame and anger as his kids are getting cooked by Eric Gordon, Rockets legend Eric Gordon. You're like, come on, man! You don't have to. You don't have to make. Not everything has to be LeBron versus MJ. Even me as a habitual pot stir as far as arguments for LeBron against MJ goes. I say that to say it's fine. It's probably fine. Are they going to face, is anybody going to face like actual consequences for shenanigans on the AAU basketball court? Probably not. Should they? Uh, I don't think so. Really? Also, I feel like even if I wasn't like Bronny or LeBron and like LeBron James was at my like dumb AU rec league game, I'd be like, okay, that's fair. <laughs> Do whatever you want. It's fine because, you know, LeBron James is here. That automatically makes it like better than like, I don't know, someone's like rent-a-cop parent, <laughs> you know, flashing the toaster. John at that ref for not calling travels. <laughs> That's basically what it boils down to. So with that, I'm going to bid you all adieu. I will see you guys next week with either a Big Ten or Big 12 preview. We're in the home stretch. We're very close to some actual college football and actual like NFL football a little bit later, but still kind of close nonetheless. I will be very excited to see where we go from there. And I will probably bring you guys some updates, some takes from Evo this weekend as well. So with that, I will say good night, good luck, have a good weekend. I'm Chris Mitchell here for Quarter Circle Backboard here on KCOU 88.1 FM and KCOU.FM. Goodbye. Pop like those who beat Mike and Jermaine. What came my life, what came my thought, but they smoking the same.